Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet. You're about to hear the recording of a live conversation. We hope you enjoy the show. It's a great pleasure uh, to have the opportunity to speak today to Ambassador Rao about her excellent book, The Fractured Himalaya, India, Tibet, China, 1949 to 1962. I can say from experience that it is a richly detailed and extremely readable account of a seminal period in relations between China and India. And it also provides a look at the centrality of Tibet and China's invasion of Tibet to relations between the two countries at the time and since. Um, In light of the continuing and escalating tensions along their 2100 mile border, this book is especially relevant now as the 60th anniversary of the war, the 1962 Sino-Indian War approaches this fall. Um, I'd just like to show the book for our audience so you can get a hold of it. It's my well-thumbed copy. Um, Ambassador Rao, thank you so much for doing this. Um, to start off our discussion, would you talk a little bit about why you chose to write about this period and why you chose the title Fractured Himalaya? Thank you, Ellen, and thank you to the International Campaign for Tibet for making it possible to have this discussion uh, this evening here in India, in the morning in Washington. Uh, Ellen, I've been asked this question about why I wrote this book. Uh, and uh, I think the first and uh, first principal point I'd like to make is that while there have been many books written on this phase of the history of India's relations with China, it's, it's a much researched, much uh, much covered, uh, much described uh, subject. But um, I was writing it from the point of view of a diplomat practitioner, somebody who had actually uh, been in the system and uh, worked on this relationship. And therefore, I came to the archival material on the subject with a distinct perspective uh, from the viewpoint of a policymaker. And I also tried to make the book as readable as possible by by also um, talking about the human factors involved in the making of policy. As you know, there's a whole cast of characters listed at the beginning of my book. So I call it a history with human characteristics. And it's almost like a set of moving pictures. I think every chapter in the book, I feel uh, I, my intention was that it should read like uh, like a serial in a, in a streaming kind of movie about the subject, a, a chapter in a, in a serial movie on the uh, television or uh, you know, a cinematic account of the subject. Not that that will ever happen, but that was my, my approach. And this represents my personal border crossings between a practitioner's world and a historian's. And I think what happens today in the India-China relationship is influenced very much by what happened in that phase of history that I write about in the book. Uh, Till the present day, it influences policy formulation. All the problems we have in our relationship with China have a history that dates back to this period. And I wanted, as you said, the 60th anniversary of this this, uh, war with China that we had this is approaching. And I wanted a young demographic, especially in India, to understand uh, understand uh, the story of what happened. And I called it the fractured Himalaya because, you know, the Himalayas are literally um, what the poet Muhammad Iqbal said before independence. They called it, he called it the Divar-e-Hindustan, that is the wall of Hindustan, the wall of India. 
it was seen, you know, the mountains from which we literally drew our strength and our protection and our sustenance. And once the Chinese entered Tibet in 1950, 1951, in a sense, the Himalaya was fractured. One of our diplomats in Lhasa at that time said, the Chinese have entered Tibet, the Himalayas no longer exist. So that was the really the uh, kind of etymology of why I used the fractured Himalaya. Um, I think your book goes into uh, quite a bit this sense that Indians and their leaders had about Tibet and the civilizational ties. Um, could you talk about uh, the impact, therefore, of the invasion of Tibet, uh, how it affected um, India's strategic outlook? Um, I think in the United States, Tibet is regarded very much as a not only a human rights issue, but almost as a, a settled matter, a uh, fait accompli. Um, whereas for India, um, it's a strategic issue with civilizational aspects uh, attached. What, what, what has really been the long-term impact of China's invasion and occupation of Tibet for India? Uh, and that's, I guess that's what I would ask. Yeah, well, that's a very important question. I think um, the first and foremost uh, point that I'd like to make as an Indian uh, who looks on Tibet as, uh, as a region very close uh, to, to our country is the fact that we've always regarded Tibet as, as that sacred geography that is in so many ways connected to India, a place of pilgrimage, a place of... Uh, uh, religious and spiritual um, inspiration uh, for many of us who go to the Himalayas and who cross over into places in Tibet which are sacred uh, to our faith. And uh, because the culture of the Himalaya, the Himalayas, the cultural boundaries transcend the political boundaries. They tend to overflow linguistically, culturally, no matter how much you divide them by various lines. So that's how India has looked at Tibet. You spoke about uh, Tibet and the Chinese uh, presence in Tibet and the Chinese control in Tibet being pretty much a fait accompli. And that's absolutely the way um, the Indian policymakers look at it also. There is really no urge to reopen that issue I think it was more or less that door closed in the early 1950s when the Chinese entered Tibet. And Tibet, as I write about it in my book, made uh, some unsuccessful efforts and attempts to bring it before the United Nations, to seek India's support, to seek the support of countries like the United Kingdom and the United States. But all those efforts ran aground. And you know, I write about how the 15-year-old Dalai Lama spent some time in, in Dromo or Yadong uh, in the Chumbi Valley. He came out of Lhasa, took refuge in Dromo, and expecting that there would be a call from India to cross over and that refuge would be offered. And that call never came. So the history of Tibet is really the history of the call that came, I think. And, uh, and the Tibetans were really left to uh, to uh, surrender to the fate, to the destiny that had been foisted on them once the Chinese uh, came there. And um, for India, I think that uh, decision, in a sense, that acceptance of the reality, the 
the uh, the uh, hardwired reality of the military occupation of Tibet by China entailed that um, uh, the the whole issue, the whole uh, problem of the borders we shared with Tibet essentially became an India-China problem because we had to deal with China. And China questioned those borders uh, a few years after it was able to consolidate its presence in Tibet. And I believe our policymakers at that time in our history perhaps didn't uh, have, uh, and I guess it's it's easy for us to say that with the hindsight that we have today, but they weren't able to look far ahead into the future and anticipate that the whole question of Tibet's status and the rights and privileges that India under the British had enjoyed in Tibet uh, were being literally given away to the Chinese. We sort of said we, we, had, we had no desire to retain any imperial kind of linkages with Tibet without understanding that while we were doing that, we, we by, by neglecting the issue of the border, by, by not raising it with the Chinese at that time, uh, we, we, were, we were entering very, very dangerous terrain as far as the relationship was concerned, because the whole question of the border, especially the McMahon line, the eastern section of the border, was tied up with our understandings reached between British India and Tibet, which we were kind of just uh, shelving or perhaps sweeping under the carpet and not by raise, not raising it with the Chinese, we were not able to anticipate the difficulties that lay ahead. Thank you. I, I guess I'd like to clarify just a little bit my use of the term fait accompli. I certainly understand India's position about Tibet's status, but have, hasn't this this border issue and even China's own definition of Tibet uh, remained not exactly static uh, and, and is sort of carried into the present day. And, it, and we see that, well, all along the border. Um, I guess this might be a good place to talk about the, you refer in the book to the essentially irreconcilable concepts of the borders that both parties have. Um, could you go into that a little bit, explain what you meant by that? Sorry, Ellen, I missed that. There was some distortion in the sound. What I wanted to ask about was, um, after having mentioned that um, uh, Tibet is an ongoing issue for China, it, it, it figures in its pressures on India, uh, obviously literally from Tibetan territory, um, but also uh, I, I thought this would be a good point for, place for you to explain in, in your book, you mentioned uh, irreconcilable concepts of the borders that China and India have, that they essentially look at these things very differently. And I suspect this, this you know, doesn't bode well. Um, and it, it really raises a question about how this issue, these issues can be resolved, if at all. Yeah, that, that's absolutely, uh, absolutely right. But, um, you know, all situations evolve and no situations are static, as you know, in relations between countries and in, in the workings of diplomacy. And I think the India-China relationship stands out as a living example of that. Uh, way back in the 1950s, when the Chinese were still consolidating their hold on Tibet and uh, had not yet, I believe, uh, crystallized their approach on the border problem with India. 
and neither had India at that time really crystallized its position. I think the scope and the opportunity existed for both countries to really arrive at a settlement and uh, an understanding of where the border would lie, whether there was need for some adjustment, whether there was scope for give and take. All those uh, possibilities existed in that early stage of our relationship. We were young countries. We were consolidating our nationhood. Uh, we were still uh, determining the foundations of our relations with our neighbors. So I believe, uh, so as I was saying that the scope existed in the early 1950s to, to really um, arrive at, at an understanding, uh, again, I think I've been cut off, but the scope existed at that time to arrive at an understanding. But as the problem erupted uh, from 1957 onwards when we discovered that the Chinese had built that road in Ladakh, um, you know, the whole country, uh, everybody in India, all the and uh, the policymakers felt that China had betrayed India's friendship. And from that point on, the scope of uh, offering some degree of, of uh, you know, negotiated give and take on this border really that, that door closed in many ways. And, uh, and th that's where, uh, from where I think things began to deteriorate. We uh, descended into the conflict. And even thereafter, even in recent decades, when we've, uh, when we've gone into a period of normalization, we still haven't been able to arrive at a mutual understanding about the borders. So to answer your question, can these matters be resolved? I guess with, with a sufficient uh, political will on both sides and that, the, you know, that, that boldness of leadership that's, that, that would be required if we have to <clears throat> arrive at, at a territorial settlement, that is, uh, you know, we're still, far off from that, uh, positions are more or less, I believe, stuck uh, in a certain uh, certain manner, and we haven't been able to uh, reduce differences or build common ground. So, so the problem has festered, and in recent years, as you know, with, with uh, the, the, uh, the loss of life in Galwan in Ladakh in June 2020, uh, things have pretty much gone downhill thereafter. Um, I wonder if you'll let me push you just a little bit because you've been explaining or looking back at this period and talking about missed opportunities on both sides and you're taking a rather even-handed approach. Uh, and yet in the book, it, you know, interspersed in the book, there's some uh, very critical uh, points you make about Indian leadership at the time. Prime Minister Nehru, uh, specifically, you refer to delusional diplomacy with regard to the border. Um, and later, although you put it, in, you ascribe the criticism to India itself as opposed to Prime Minister Nehru, uh, you you lament the the lost opportunity to lead a lead a campaign on Tibet's behalf. That's a that's a paraphrase, but there's an extensive paragraph where you uh, talk about timidity and caution and uh, uh, renouncing uh, obligations or or other renunciation and calculated indifference is the is the, the yeah. quote. Um, would you, you know, one of the really valuable things about the book, especially from my point of view, is this, as you mentioned earlier, the, the personalities, which obviously come into play in diplomacy. Could you look back again and, and talk about 
those lost opportunities, the leverage that India had, the ways it made decisions on Tibet um, before it had uh, established, you know, made come to agreements with the border or uh, what, what, looking back, would you say, if only we had done this or that, um, it might at least put us in a better position, or it would have honestly been the right thing to do uh, with regard to Tibet? Well, I, I yes, I believe that uh, given uh, the enormous uh, emotional attachment of Indians to Tibet and the uh, feelings of empathy and uh, and uh, the connections that we always felt we had with the Tibetan people, I believe that when the Chinese entered Tibet in 1950, 1951, India could have raised its voice internationally to speak about um, what was happening in Tibet, the kind of uh, alteration of the status quo that was taking place, the fact that Tibet had had um, really exercised uh, a more or less, uh, I would say, autonomous identity. I wouldn't use the word independent, but autonomous from uh, before the Chinese Revolution uh, and from the early decades of the 20th century. Tibet had exercised that kind of autonomy. And um, India basically took the line that there was really nothing we could do militarily to resist what was happening in Tibet, which may have been a realistic judgment. I, I, I don't you know, say we could have done things differently. But uh, just as we were taking steps to consolidate our administrative presence right up to uh, the borders as we saw them uh, with Tibet and then you know, once the Chinese had come in with the Chinese uh, uh, state at that time, just as we were taking steps to consolidate our presence, especially in the eastern Himalaya, right up to the border, we should have taken simultaneous steps to, to be uh, the conscience for Tibet, to speak out, uh, to talk about the dangers that existed as we saw a way of life that had existed for centuries in Tibet slipping away under communist rule. Uh, let's not forget the fact that India, particularly in those early years of its independence, was uh, was resisting uh, communist insurgencies within the country. Also, we knew the the face of communism, and and our leadership was very much against communism. You know, even if we talk about non-alignment and the fact that India was equally uh, tied to the Eastern Bloc as it was to the Western Bloc, and that irritated the Western Bloc no end at that time. The fact is, within the country, uh, the fact that we were a constitutional democracy, that we were against ultra-leftist politics, that we were against the kind of uh, instability uh, that we had seen uh, in existence in areas where, you know, uh, uh, these communist movements were were trying to create mayhem for us in, in some parts of India. I think there was a national uh, feeling within the country that communism had to be opposed. Um, perhaps with China, it was not uh, defined in a manner that we should take on the Chinese militarily, but we could have been that voice uh, for uh, democratic values and for uh, for the preservation of Tibet's identity. I don't think we spoke enough of that. And then, secondly, uh, when it came, time came to negotiate and to discuss the rights and privileges that we had in Tibet, that we had inherited from the British Raj as a successor state of the British Raj, 
uh, independent India negotiated away those rights and privileges, uh, which perhaps we had to, but as I said, we didn't talk about settling the border at that time. We never spoke about anything that would have pointed to our empathy for the Tibetans. I think we were rather silent and rather circumspect and hesitant to, to talk about these matters with, with the Chinese. In a sense, we didn't want to upset the apple cart in, in any way. And the, the policy, I think, was riddled with contradictions because even as we were doing all this, after we signed the agreement on trade with Tibet, uh, between India and China on the Tibet region of, uh, of China in 1954, the so-called uh, Panchil Agreement that, uh, that uh, enlist, that uh, enumerated the five principles of peaceful coexistence, we come back from those negotiations and a few weeks later, Prime Minister Nehru takes the decision to show our boundaries with China, essentially with Xinjiang and the Tibet region as fixed and determined uh, without taking into account the fact that there was every possibility that these borders could be disputed, that the very fact of China's entry into Tibet had laid open, had opened up a whole you know, Pandora's box as far as these old disputes were concerned. And uh, we were up against a powerful uh, government, a powerful state that was seeking dominance in the region and a leadership position in Asia. And that would be a challenge for India. Nehru sensed that, but I don't think he was able to translate those apprehensions into the actual workings of policy. Um, speaking of Prime Minister Nehru, I, I was struck by the treatment of um, both his his, uh, his idealism, uh, the sort of the contrast between uh, what he hoped uh, would be a collaborative uh, relationship with uh, the PRC and what ultimately happened during his uh, term in, in office, and also on the, the kind of the personal and physical toll that you describe events of that time taking on him. Was that something that you knew well already from your knowledge of the period? Or did, did you, looking into this, did you gain any insights or different attitude towards Prime Minister Nehru, who is obviously such a major figure in, in India's history? Yeah, well, I approached the, the whole the figure of Prime Minister Nehru and his role in the story um, I, with no preconceived notions, of course, I was candid in criticizing some aspects of his decision making when it came to China. But I also tried through the book to uh, to uh, uh, to elaborate uh, on an understanding uh, of of the man, of the leader, of the politician, of of the uh, foreign policy practitioner as I saw him. I tried to. I, I tried to create a rounded description of him as a person. So my aim was not to uh, to uh, put him in the dock and to conduct a court martial, literally, of Nehru. That was not not my aim. Uh, I grew up. I'm a generation uh, of from a generation of Indians who were children when when Nehru was our prime minister. He was a beloved prime minister. Uh, we all called him Chacha Nehru, which was Uncle Nehru. So, you know, there is that sentimental feeling that I still have towards Prime Minister Nehru and, and the fact that his patriotism and his uh, devotion to the national cause, I believe, 
cannot really be questioned. Uh, we are all human, we all make errors, and, and so was Nehru. He was flawed in a tragic story, I've said. At the end of the story, and I've tried to recount, you know, the physical toll that all this took on him, and uh, he he uh, emerges in the winter of his days as a very, very tragic uh, figure. Uh, in many ways, I think you can relate to him. The, the human factor, I think, really predominates uh, much more than, you know, any any uh, any judgment that you want to make uh, about his failings and his shortcomings. I wonder if we could talk a bit about um, the Dalai Lama, his his life in India, or his India's hospitality to the Dalai Lama, and the looming issue of his uh, death and reincarnation. Um, did um, as as you as you as you try to draw lessons from the period that you've just written about, um, what what is what is your sense of how India will handle that uh, momentous event when it happens, um, and how does how does India look at it, and what how does it look at uh, Tibetan Buddhism or Buddhism generally as it's you know India feels very uh, proud of its its uh, Buddhist past uh, and the, the heritage that it has. And that's part of its influence in the in the region. So, what 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 can we think about uh, India's attitude towards this looming event uh, and its the future of, of Buddhism and its outlook? Well, I believe Buddhism is very much a, a big denominator of India's soft power, particularly in Asia. Comes to India, all roads literally lead to India as far as Buddhist pilgrims are concerned, all over the region. I think that is something we're proud of and we we keep alive. My write in the book about the Dalai Lama and the Panchen Lama and Premier Chon Lai coming to India for the 2,500th anniversary uh, of the of the Parinirvana of the Buddha. Uh, so uh, I think this was something that uh, that predominated in India's thinking from the early 50s onwards. It was something that Prime Minister Nehru himself emphasized and uh, considered to be one of India's civilizational strengths. The fact that Buddhism had in many senses united India and united Asia with India in many ways, especially as we look at the history of the India-China relationship, Buddhism was very much a connecting factor. But when it comes to Tibetan Buddhism, I would draw a little distinction. Of course, as far as our Himalayan regions are concerned, uh, there is a great deal of devotion uh, and ties that link uh, the people of our Himalayas with the Tibetans. There's no doubt that there is. It's an ethnic, uh, cultural, religious, and spiritual belt that transcends borders. As I said, the story cuts across the map. But if you know, for instance, now we have tried to revive Nalanda University, which was a seat of Buddhist learning. Uh, and Nalanda Buddhism, the Nalanda school, is very, very vital for the understanding of Tibetan Buddhism. But um, it is a fact, I don't think you can, you can obscure it, that in the revival of Nalanda University and the kind of um, uh, linkages that India has sought to build up internationally in order to promote the project, uh, the Tibetans don't figure at all. In fact, it is, uh, we have the Chinese and we have the Singaporeans and we have uh, some other countries, but but you know this is part of our approach that Tibet is now a part of China, and uh, 
we've been uh, we've been uh, we've we've been treading rather carefully, I would say, about not, uh, in a sense, uh, crossing into territory that would elicit uh, an adverse Chinese reaction on this. So I think the whole question of the Nalanda project stands out as an example of how, uh, you know, the, the consecration of these Buddhist uh, heritage uh, uh, projects and uh, and this whole history that we want to bring alive today is really not linked in any way with Tibet. So Tibet somehow has existed in its own bubble as far as uh, we, are, we are concerned. Now coming to the uh, to the succession of uh, His Holiness and the fact that uh, how the Chinese are going to deal with this issue and how India is going to what India's policy approaches will be towards this. Of course, I'm not privy to what is being discussed in Delhi on the subject, but you know the the developments that one sees from outside. Now you see this this um, uh, this awakening of interest, especially uh, as far as the U.S. government is concerned, about reaching out to the, to the Tibetan community in exile. Uh, Under Secretary uh, Azra Zaya has just visited Dharamsala. She's met His Holiness and. Obviously, uh, these issues are beginning to occupy the attention of policymakers in the State Department and the White House, definitely, as, I, as I'm sure they are occupying uh, Indian, um, our concerns and our policymaking establishment. But I think uh, that um, India can do a little more in being an advocate for, for negotiations and for link uh, discussions and for conversations between the Tibetan community in exile and the Chinese. It's another matter that the Chinese establishment has been so uh, so impervious any moves made on this subject. They, they, they see it as a sovereignty issue, they see Tibet as an internal matter of China, they, they refuse to, uh, to accommodate uh, any ideas that come from outside that speak of reconciliation, that speak of building more common ground between the community, Tibetan community in exile and the Chinese. And unless you have that kind of building of common ground, how are you going to solve this whole issue of the succession of the Dalai Lama and uh, what happens in Tibet in the decades to come? So I think India and maybe the United States, it's something that we perhaps should be, uh, look at uh, at uh, not only exchanging ideas, but also looking at at policy options that we have to ensure the best of the best outcomes for the Tibetan people in these circumstances. Well, thank you very much. You anticipated several other questions that I was going to ask, so I really couldn't ask for any more uh, from you in in talking both about the the past uh, that you've researched in such detail and in discussing the, the implications or the relevance of those events to today. So I'd like to thank you very much and uh, uh, commend your book to our viewers. And I hope we can talk again. You mentioned that you're at work uh, on some, some, more, some more writing about, uh, with a little bit more, if I may mention, uh, uh, that might go into a bit of your personal experience as a diplomat, and I honestly can't wait to read it. So thank you very much, Ambassador Rao. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tibet Talks. 
Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at savetibet.org pod. To find out how you can get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit savetibet.org support. Thank you and see you next time on Tibet Talks.